this week on the Backtable Podcast. My favorite example of bad design is the EpiPen. So in untrained adults, four out of five unsuccessfully complete injection per the instructions on an EpiPen. And nearly 15% would have injected their own hand if not stopped. And injecting your own hand with epinephrine is not ideal, obviously. We all know you can cause skin necrosis, all sorts of side effects, but that's really the main concern. And then there's another study that shows that in doctors, up to 16% self-injected their thumb when deploying a training device. You know, I'm sure at the board meetings, when they started to see these results, you know, inside the company that developed the EpiPen, they were probably like, well, you know, the patients just need to be more compliant. Yeah. Or the patients need we better need to train training. Them or educate them. Right, exactly. Yeah. But if instead we blame, like I was alluding to earlier, there's several major flaws with the design of the EpiPen. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things interventional and endovascular. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and on backtable.com. Now, a brief message from our sponsor. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during cine and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your fluoro-guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And don't forget to tell them that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Now, back to the episode. This is Aaron Fritz. We have a great episode today. We're going to be talking about design thinking in medicine with some examples covering intermetriology, but also other uh, examples that we might see in medicine, even in the cath lab. With us today, we got Greg Kodorov from Thomas Jefferson, Department of Interventional Radiology. Welcome, Greg. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Yeah, so Greg, we, you and I met not too long ago. Um, we had a nice conversation via phone. We've had prior Jefferson people on both previously, Karin Gonzalez, most recently. I want you to kind of give us a quick intro though. Tell us how you became interested in today's topic, which is design thinking. Give us a little background. Sure. Yes. I was supposed to start medical school right after undergrad and the, I was in the U-Haul truck on the way home from, you know, packing up all my stuff and moving back home for the summer before med school started. And then while we were driving in the U-Haul, I got this email saying my med school had over-admitted students. And in order to, I guess like too many people had said yes, basically, and that year, and they weren't expecting that many yeses. So in order to sort of alleviate some of that inflow of students, they offered one year free tuition if you deferred for a year. And at the time, my partner, wow. um, who's now my fiance, was uh, going to be doing a post and then applying to med school. So I started thinking like, you know, it might be nice to sync up so that we could couples match eventually if we're still together. And uh and I had always wanted to get educated in business. So uh, I ended up taking the GMAT in like two weeks and applying to business school. And so I, I basically got them to approve my doing an MD MBA, but not in the traditional way where you kind of take a break between certain years of clinical medicine, but rather just right up front. So I, I got the MBA out of the way. Yeah. And in that year, this phrase design thinking kept showing up in our innovation classes and elsewhere. So that's sort of how I got first exposed. And then when I was a first year med student, I was just, you know, Googling like design thinking in healthcare. 
And I remember coming across this medical conference, Stanford MedX, on Stanford's campus. And I started a GoFundMe, basically, to buy my registration and my flights. And through yeah. friends and family who kind of supported me, I was able to go attend that conference, even though I wasn't presenting anything and I couldn't get any you know, funding through my school for that. And it just really opened my eyes to how important this concept is in medicine in particular, because the whole philosophy around design thinking revolves around the idea of human-centered design, meaning if you keep your end user, the human, at the center of your design process and your innovation process, you end up with better results and innovation that matters as opposed to innovation that's created in a lab and then tried and then attempted to kind of retrofit somewhere in the marketplace. Yeah. So that's sort of how I got interested in the topic. And then I kind of brought that concept back to my med school and I started teaching some of these concepts to med students. I was a co-president of this med student organization called the Biomedical Entrepreneurship Network at my med school. And we kind of just taught innovation concepts and physician entrepreneurship to med students and and design thinking was like a big sort of vein that kind of made its way through that philosophy of how I kind of approached teaching and workshopping with students. And well, then I want to stop right there because yeah. I want to. So I want I want to thank you for defining you know design thinking first because you know when I hear that term I'm not quite sure what that entirely means. Like you know my brother for example is an industrial design major and I remember him designing products. But, you know, when you think of design thinking, especially in healthcare, I think a lot of physicians, you probably see this, probably eyes glaze over and, and they're not quite sure what you're talking about until you really give a nice, clear definition like what you just did. I do want to back up one minute because I am curious about where where did you go to med school? Uh, I went to Rutgers, Robert Wood Johnson. Rutgers, which it, I forget, is that is that private or is that public? It's a public med school. Public, okay. So still substantial savings, right, by deferring a year. Did they did they pay for your MBA as well? So they didn't pay for the MBA, but the actually the uh, med school was more expensive. Uh, one year of med school is more expensive, so I I, I made out with crazy. a little bit of uh, profit to apply to my first year of med school after that. That's amazing, man. That's great. That what like and it's, it's so funny how timing works out like that sometimes, right? Something similar happened with me and my wife, where it just kind of like opportunity sometimes happens so that you, because we were couples match, you know, we were kind of trying to be along the same timeline like you and your partner and uh it's just funny how opportunities fall in your lap like that so let's fast forward you're in med school you said you were actually teaching some of these concepts to uh your your fellow classmates yeah so uh as a med student i with a group of you know just friends who kind of believed in me and uh and we all kind of were interested in this same topic of where do physicians belong in the in the entrepreneurship space we founded the first health innovation summit at our med school so we we brought in some speakers and and that's still an ongoing thing that it's really cool to see actually this past year the former ceo of jefferson was one of their speakers i was like wow that's really full circle for me but yeah anyway the at the end of the conference after all the talks and stuff we would challenge these students with a design challenge and it'd be like a quick sprint, basically, over the course of half an hour, these students would, would just, with whoever's sitting at their round table, all work on the same problem and through the design process, kind of begin workshopping a solution and then present that to everyone else. So it was a cool way to just kind of expose people to the concepts, I think, which are 
the thing is with like design and with business concepts, I think a lot of it is intuitive once you've put a name to something. And unlike medicine, where sometimes the results are non-intuitive, most of us have a pretty good concept of what humans need or want. So when you see good design, for instance, I feel like it's really apparent. You, you know, you know, yeah. we, we all recognize good design right when it happens, but bad design can sometimes just be, it's challenging to notice because you just build a workaround. I think you and I talked about this before when we talked by phone was examples seem to be like the best way to kind of get this through to people. Yeah. Examples of good design, examples of bad design. Uh, it sounds like that's how you were, you're teaching your peers, but if you, for our listeners, can you kind of give a few, uh, you and I talked about them before, but. I think you have a couple of favorite examples that you would use to teach. Sure. Yeah. I mean, so one of my favorite examples of good design that everyone recognizes is this company called PillPack. And basically what the company does is it took the concept of a bunch of orange medicine bottles in your medicine cabinet and flipped it on its head and really thought about its end user, right? The patient who's... yeah you know, opening this medicine cabinet every day may or may not be in good, you know, in good health otherwise, or good neurologic health or cognitive health and forcing them to, you know, shuffle through hundreds of these tiny labels on these orange uh, bottles. And what they thought about was, you know, like, how might we make this a little easier for everyone? And the reason I emphasize how might we is because all good design thinking starts with this question of how might we, and really thinking about, in this case, it would be how might we change the user experience when it comes to taking your medications to be to increase compliance and usability. And so pill pack is this like roll, like a plastic roll that comes per month basically on a monthly basis. And every, you know, couple of inches is your next medication in a separate little tear off package that has the time that you're supposed to take it. So you wake up on Saturday and your roll is on a Saturday and it says 10 a.m take your gabapentin and you just peel that off and you take it. And then if you've missed the medication because you go back to your roll, this like continuous roll of plastic and you see that, oh, okay, 12 o'clock came and I didn't take that medication, but it says 12 o'clock, I was supposed to take it. So I think it's more than just making it easier for the patient, it also increases compliance. So that's an example of something that, you know, usually we end up blaming the patient for not being compliant. But if instead we think about blaming the designer of those orange pill bottles and thinking about how we might make that experience better for the patient, you end up with a result that really matters and affects patient care. So that's my favorite example of good design. My favorite example of bad design is the EpiPen. So in untrained adults, four out of five unsuccessfully complete injection per the instructions on an EpiPen. And nearly 15%, this is from actual literature, nearly 15% would have injected their own hand if not stopped. And injecting your own hand with epinephrine is not ideal, obviously. Like we all know you can cause skin necrosis, all sorts of side effects, but that's really the main concern. And then there's another study that shows that in doctors, up to 16% self-injected their thumb when deploying a training device. So at some point you have to start wondering, you know, I'm sure at the board meetings, when they started to see these results inside the company that developed the EpiPen, they were probably like, well, you know, the patients just need to be more compliant. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, the patients need, need better to train training. train them or educate them. Right, exactly. Yeah. But if instead we blame, like I was alluding to earlier, there's several major flaws with the design of the EpiPen. 
First is it has a completely non-intuitive construction. So in most of medicine, like if you think about a syringe with a needle on the end, the cap covers the needle, right? You take off the cap and the needle's underneath. The EpiPen, the cap covers the button and the needle's on the other side of the device. So right off the bat, anyone who is used to using syringes is confused by this device and the cap situation, right? Right. Then on the actual EpiPen itself, there's extremely confusing instructions and they're paired with graphics that, you know, it's like reading a comic book. Like, have you ever read a comic book and then you have to like go back to the start of the page and you're like, wait, I, I missed something. Like I, I don't fully understand what happened in the plot here. That's what the EpiPen instructions are like. And then lastly, it's extremely uncomfortable to use and carry. It's like nearly twice the length of an inhaler and a similar diameter, like a little bit smaller in diameter. So if you imagine like a seven-year-old kid at camp who has, you know, an anaphylactic reaction to peanuts, he's not strapping this thing to his leg in like a strange carrying pouch. And, you know, he's not going to be embarrassed at camp, right? So he's just not going to bring it. And that's not (laughs) his fault, right? That's the designer's fault. Right. So... And it's not that much epinephrine either, right? It's not, why does it need to be in such a large, you know, cylinder? Yeah. I mean, I don't really fully know, and I'm sure there was some reasoning behind it that I'm not privy to, but if we take that and just apply some of these design thinking principles, like I'm alluding to, so there's kind of several steps to the design thinking process, right? There's empathize, which is really understanding your end user. Right. And that revolves around interviewing your end user, interviewing everyone else involved in the process and really beginning to understand that. Then you define the problem. And that's where the how might we question comes in. So you say, for instance, in this case, how might we design a device to increase compliance and safety of an epinephrine delivery system? And then from there, you ideate and then prototype and then test and then implement. So ideation is anything is a good idea. It's sort of like a brainstorm mode. And then prototyping is you kind of narrow down and you say, all right, we want to build this one idea out. And that might be as simple as, you know, pipe cleaners and cardboard just to kind of feel out the situation. And then from there, you go on to testing it with your end user and then eventually implementing, which is actually applying like market strategies and bringing it to scale. And each one of those steps, it's kind of like forward arrows between all those steps, but also backward arrows to every step before it, because it's a very iterative process and you have to be willing to, you know, take your prototype, let's say, and bring it to an end user. And then the minute they say, okay, well, this could be better, or, you know, I don't like the way this is done. You take that back and you start ideating again, right? So you go forward, but you just as often go backward in the process. And that way you are bringing something to market at the end of the day that really matters. And as opposed to bringing something that you think matters to market, like I'm sure the EpiPen designers did, and then realizing that, oh, we actually have a serious problem on our hands here with usability. So there's there's another device called the AviQ, significantly less adopted, but it actually solves all these problems. Like I, I'm convinced that there was a true design thinker in the process of making this product. So first of all, in untrained adults, the AviQ has a 99.5% successful deployment and the cap and needle are on the same side. It's a smaller size. So it's about the size of like a small credit card wallet. And then the voice, there's a, there's voice activation. There's like a, an actual speaker built into the system that takes you through every step, almost like a like a defibrillator would have in the field. Yeah, that's what it reminds me of. 
So it takes out all the guesswork. Yeah, I mean, you talk about good design. I mean, you look at how many lives that the AED device has saved just by adding that that voice walkthrough, right? And and something that can be packed away and in, in the corner of any building. It's not this big bulky device, right? That's something's got to wheel out from a closet or something. And again, it's the proof is in the pudding with this stuff. So ultimately, your usability is directly related to patient care in medicine and. You know, we take that idea of human-centered design, which is the whole idea behind design thinking. And when you extend it to healthcare, it's patient-centered design or physician-centered design or whoever you're innovating for, basically, you put in that X-centered design. And once you start thinking about things like that and you realize, well, in that case, it would be actually pedestrian, you're like, you know, uh, passerby-centered design, right? Because you just want anybody to be able right. to use this device and yeah, not somebody exactly. in, who's the patient and not someone who's the provider. So you start thinking, what do they really need in order to use this device successfully? And the answer is really foolproof method of taking yeah. you through the instructions, right? And most humans are really good at listening to instructions from a voice. Most humans are really bad at reading instructions. I can think of 20 terms of service that I just accepted at face value for different apps on my phone this past month, right? Like, I, it's just... Yeah. We, yeah. we hate reading. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to read them. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. So that's, and, and I think one way to kind of break it down is I like to really say if it needs a sign, it's bad design, right? So yeah. that's, I think a really good metric to use. Like how often in healthcare do you see like a, a button on the wall of the hospital or a door that needs opening and, and you go to push the door and it's actually a pull door and, but it says pull, but you're you know, you you just your instinct is to push it because of the way it's designed. So, this concept is called a Norman door. As Norman was a designer, and he basically thought about how doors are one of the oldest technologies, and yet so often in our daily life, we go to pull a door and it's a push door, or we go to push a door and it's a pull door, and you know that's that's not on us. That's on the designer of the door. Yeah. So, give us some other examples of poor design that we see in the hospital. Sure. Yeah. One of my favorite examples is at my medical school, there was one scrub machine that had like a swipe, like an ID swipe thing where you, you know, swipe your ID and you get one pair of scrubs. And the manufacturer's text on the machine said swipe to the right. And it also said barcode up. And then handwritten next to that was another sign that said barcode down and this and like a pen someone took a pen and basically just like went back and forth a bunch of times and made an arrow in the other direction that the manufacturer had put on the device that that's actually the true way that you operate this oh scrub my machine. gosh yeah right and i love that example because if it needs a sign it's bad design if it needs a handwritten sign on top of the manufacturer sign it's really bad design right like that is just the worst user experience and we might not think, you know, a scrub machine access affects patient care, but at the end of the day, if your scrubs are soaked, you scrub out of a case to change your scrubs, and then you're in, you encounter this design travesty, you're really hitting patient care, you know, like you're you may be delaying care and your your ability to get back into the case, and that's like a really simple and obviously extrapolated example, but 
that design affects patients all the time. Do you think part of it is just the technology maybe doesn't exist at that time? Because right right now we think about like our phones, you can just like tap everything. You don't even have to swipe your credit card anymore. You know, and it's the same thing with like doors, right? A lot of doors are now just automatic. You don't have to think about push or pull. It just motion detector and you walk through. Do you think it's just technology not keeping up? Like in terms of like, you know, the scrub machine. Yeah, my scrub machine acted the same way. It was It was not easy for whatever reason. Yeah, I don't think so. I think ultimately, if you keep the end user and their experience at the center of your design process, no matter your technical limitations, you'll come up with a product that's usable. And that has pervaded society from the very beginning. You know what I mean? Like doors have literally been around for millennia (laughs) at this point. They're probably one of the first things to ever be built. And the fact that we still every once in a while walk through a door and push it when we're supposed to pull it is just it you know it's just laughable like the it really is and and if you think about now i'll give you a better example okay so let's say you you're going through a door and you've got a patient to push and they have a stroke and they're you're taking them to the interventional neurosuite to perform a thrombectomy where every second counts and you're encountering this door and it shaves off three seconds of your time when time is brain seconds lead to minutes of delays of care and so i really do think that it's one of those things that much of our built world doesn't keep the end user at its core of its design process and that's that's really what i'm passionate about so tell us what's going on at jefferson like tell our audience also we didn't cover in the beginning like where you are in residency and sort of how you've integrated this into your training and also trying to implement projects at Jefferson. Sure, so I'm a PGY3 IRDR integrated resident at Jefferson. And yeah, well, so the first thing I did was when I was an intern, we had like a weekly surgical didactics conference. And I thought that was a really good opportunity to kind of touch a specialty that I wouldn't end up in. So I presented this at one of those didactics to like all the surgical residents and then it was kind of on me for doing that because it ended up leading to just texts from every surgery resident for the rest of the year about like just bad design in the hospital. So I ended up with like this massive repository of, you know, just little things like things that we usually find a workaround for in the hospital, but ended up everyone kept being like, hey, we should think about this or we should think about that. And it's funny, like once you teach these concepts and you point it out to, to people, they really start noticing that bad design is pervasive. And it's that's not a commentary on the hospital system or its delivery of care, but in some ways it does affect patient care. So it is important. So after my intern year, I began thinking about how to kind of use the resources at Jefferson. So a lot of healthcare design forefront thinkers are at Jefferson, luckily. So Bon Koo and Rob Puglies run the Jefferson Design Lab. I believe the technical name is the Health Design Lab. And this is actually a physical space that teaches medical students these concepts. So I started thinking about how I could incorporate some of that into the interventional radiology department. And I landed on this project where some of the design school students who are not in healthcare, they're just industrial design students, they rotate through the Jefferson Health Design Lab and they want to be exposed to healthcare. So I had two students come in we got them, they already had the clearance for the hospital because they're Jefferson students. And I just had them observe in the interventional radiology suite for several sessions, a couple hours at a time. 
And then in the process, they're, they're building empathy. They're building that empathy that's the core of the design process. And so they spoke to our techs, they spoke to our nurses, they spoke to our faculty, and they spoke to our residents. And they also just watched some cases happen. And their insights were remarkable. So a big part of, I think, design thinking in healthcare and realizing those things that we all just learn to work around, but ultimately delay our ability to provide efficient care students pick up right away because they're just like, wait, why do you do things like that? So one great example is our, our built-in lighting in the ceiling. If you bring some of that ceiling mounted equipment in the NGO suite, so like, let's say you're moving your II a little bit, you could hit a certain position where the lighting is completely blocked by the II and you end up with lower lighting in the room for whatever duration of time that is. And if at that moment you have to suture or hold pressure or see if like, you know, there's bleed back or something like that, that ultimately affects the case. Yeah. And so they were like, why did you guys build this room with lighting that would be obstructed by your equipment at certain angles, basically? And, you know, we've found workarounds for that. We have that same ceiling mounted equipment. We have like a spotlight that we bring in. Right. And they were like, you know, it's kind of silly that the one thing you definitely need lighting is like obstructed by this equipment at certain angles. And so that's not something that's easy to fix in a room, right? Like the ceiling mounted lighting is staying there until that room gets torn down basically. But yeah, it does give us some insight when we start rebuilding or move to a new building or a new, new area of something to really think about and, and try to improve. No, the lighting thing is a total pain in the butt. I mean, yeah. I'm, I'm constantly asking the nurse to bring it over, like even just for a Mediport, suturing a Mediport up. And they're like, oh, and then sometimes the arm is like in a weird position because of where the C-arm is and they got to bring it around. And it's just, it's not functional at all. Yeah. In most of the labs that I work in, lighting is like one of the worst things. And again, I don't get it. Why was it designed that way, right? We're here to do procedures. We need lighting. Yeah. It's just fascinating. Uh, once you start thinking about this stuff and like really opening your eyes to it, you realize just how many workarounds we have in yeah. the IR suite. And we even in training, we get taught these workarounds, but many of us are not cognizant that we're even being taught workarounds. Right. You're basically just adapting to your poorly built environment in some ways. Right. And losing efficiency along the way. Right. So anything else that these med students have uncovered by observing? Yeah. And again, they're not med students. They're just design students. Oh, design students. Sorry. So they have no healthcare experience. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So I, that's, that's part of the fascination is that, and I, I think it's important to the design process is bringing in fresh eyes who are not used to seeing the workarounds that you and I just have learned to adapt over our many years of, you know, training in, in medicine. Yeah. One other thing that they noticed is our use of the sharps container is variable dependent on the attending and no one is unsafe. Everyone, you know, protects their sharps, puts them all in one place. But some people really like that foam box that you put the sharps into yeah. and then other people yeah. don't and not having a uniform approach to that is theoretically dangerous. Yeah, it has some danger to it. And I'm not saying, again, that there's dangerous practice at our institution, and I, I want to emphasize that, and I think everyone's really safe. But by nature of not being uniform, there is some risk. So they found a bunch of other alternatives that might work better. And there are some that are already built, but just not adopted because of cost or because they just don't come in the standard kits and you have to like ask for them actively. Yeah. 
but there are other needle holding solutions, but most IR suites don't have them. So I, that was, that was kind of an interesting insight. And if you think about those two insights from these designers, I like to point those two out in particular, because the next step in the design process was me sitting down with these students and the design lab and thinking, okay, where should we focus our efforts? So you found a bunch of things that might need improvement. Yeah. Obviously we need to prove that they need improvement. So that comes with looking at KPIs and really understanding the metrics associated with some of these inefficiencies. But then at the same time, we also need to kind of realize what we can and are not capable of improving in the short term versus the long term. Right. So that lighting example, for instance, so we basically took an X and Y plotted graph and on one axis we put effort and on the other we put impact. Right. And then we took all of these solutions that they had come up with and we basically plotted them on this graph of high effort, high impact, high effort, low impact, low effort, high impact, with the ultimate goal of being our first effort should be focused on low effort, high impact solutions. Right. That's sort of like yeah. your creme de la creme. That's like the easy, low hanging fruit that you can solve and improve immediately. So that sharp solution for instance was one of those low effort high impact areas and then it's just a matter of you know getting the, everyone else on board and and actually applying these solutions and that's actually the trickiest part yeah well i mean let, let's tackle that because as we know it seems like hospitals and healthcare is getting more and more admin heavy we have to get approval for everything it seems like these days academic centers can be just as bad if not worse what are you seeing in terms of resistance when you present these problems and potential solutions? Yeah, well, I think resistance will always be there. And and I also think it's difficult, right? Everything, you know, even getting a device that's approved for an indication to be brought into the hospital system you're working in is like climbing a mountain, right? Challenging. Yeah, it's extremely challenging. So then getting people on board with non-billable changes, like changes to workflow or efficiency, it's a tougher use case, right? Like you really have to show people the proof in the pudding, like I said earlier, and the, the money talks. So finding key performance indicators, KPIs that work really well is challenging. And I also think that even in the case where you do present all the data and say, okay, we'll save X amount of hours and we'll save, you know, Y amount of overtime pay for staff and, and Z amount of, we'll be able to increase our procedures by Z amount per day. Even when you present all that, it's obviously really challenging, but there's, you know, there are things you can do as a trainee to impact that. And I think that's as simple as, you know, sending an email to leadership. And I think most committees in our department welcome resident sit-in. So they kind of welcome residents to kind of sit in and if they, if they want to, and obviously depending on the committee, but that's really where you can make the difference. So for my trainees out there, I think that's really the first step is to figure out who's making these decisions and how might I impact them or at least you know bend their ear a little bit well you you bring up a good point and i remember this as a trainee because we were trying to do some make some changes at our hospital you really need like an attending kind of champion right and whether that be a mentor of yours or just somebody who sees what you're trying to do and believes in you and is willing to kind of go to bat for you with yeah. the admin help you present it to them or even take the information that you've gathered and present it themselves that would be my advice for a trainee, just having gone through that again as a resident. And would that be, I mean, it sounds like that 
might be that's kind of what you're getting at in terms of it's hard to do from the training perspective it sounds like yeah for sure i mean i think that's just the sort of hierarchical nature of what we do and i think that's with good reason too right so yeah i might see the needle holder as a big issue but then the leadership might think you know we have a very low risk of needle injury we've got basically no data to support that this will make any sort of meaningful change and we've been doing it this way for, you know, 20 years. So, and no one gets stuck. So why do we need to invest our efforts, let alone our money into making this a reality? That's the inevitable battle with, with this stuff, but it, that's what makes it meaningful and, and worthwhile. Well, it even goes along with like older attendings. It's just like, well, that's the way we've been doing it. I don't see any problem with keep, continuing to do it that way. And you have to, you have to edu- educate them like, well, there's a better way to do it. And it could lead to better patient care. I mean, just for example, when I was training 12 years ago, some of the attendings were resistant to doing access under ultrasound because they weren't comfortable with it. And it's like, no, this like this is the safe way to do it. You can actually watch your needle go into your vessel. Like, why would you not do it this way? And they would have some excuse for why, oh, well, this is a way we do it and you have to be able to do it by feel. And, and now, fast forward 10, 12 years, it's reckless not to access a vessel under ultrasound, right? And so I just think, I always kind of think of that when it's just, when you're facing resistance from maybe not even admin, but just an older generation who their answer can sometimes be just, well, that's the way I was trained. That's the way we've always done it. There's no reason to change. Well, yeah, there there is when you can improve, especially when you can improve patient care, right? Right. And again, I, most of my efforts have been focused on the internal improvement, aka entrepreneurship space, right? So that's making a difference from within your institution as opposed to entrepreneurship, which is much more external. And, you know, you can just say, okay, I see this as a problem. The market will bear out that it is a problem. And if I just build a solution, people will start adopting it. And I think the design thinking process applies to both of those principles, obviously, like the same idea of going through these steps, being iterative, really keeping your end user in mind is critical to entrepreneurship and entrepreneurship. Yeah. The problem is that entrepreneurship is actually sometimes much harder to kind of move things along uh, because you end up hitting bureaucracy of a large institution as opposed to being agile on your own and being able to just decide that something needs to happen, right? Right. But if you see a problem from within, it's meaningful to make those changes. And I think people generally, when I approach our leadership about these sorts of things, people are interested because if you build the use case for it and you say, this affects patient care, our leadership is really interested in that. So I'm fortunate to be at an institution that actually hears out its residents in this sort of capacity. Yeah. And and so I know you've spoken about this, you've given talks you know, how can others at other places implement a design thinking approach um, and any resource recommendations that you have? Yeah, sure. Well, I think if you're going to start working in this sort of space, it's important to recognize your own biases, just like when you start research and think about bringing in someone else. So if you're at a large university that has like a biomedical engineering section or even like a design school, like some schools do, it's worth reaching out to those people and saying, hey, can you just come take a look and see what's going on here. And yeah, I can teach you everything you need to know from the clinical perspective, but I'd really like an outsider's view on what we're doing wrong or like how we might improve. Yeah. I think that's truly invaluable. And, you know, a lot of residency programs are associated with large universities. So that's not an insurmountable task. It just takes an email. 
And then getting, you know, obviously the department on board with something like that uh, is a whole nother beast, but most program directors are interested in QI projects for their residents. So if you pitch it as a QI project, that's kind of the easiest way to do entrepreneurship work. From the entrepreneurship perspective, obviously it's like institution dependent on the policies around that and being really clear with your time devotion to that, whether it's in the hospital or outside, uh, kind of dictates ultimately who gets the IP around that. So that's a whole nother separate topic. But yeah, I think if you see a problem and you have a hunch that there is a solution to be had, then going through this design thinking process, you don't necessarily have to have the solution up front. These exercises, uh, which are easily accessible, there's you know lots of books. I really like Ban Ku, one, the guy who runs our design lab here. He's an emergency medicine physician, and he runs a design lab podcast um, that you can look up. And then there's also he and Ellen Lupton, who's a really fantastic designer, wrote this book called Health Design Thinking. And they summarize examples that they've done with their students in that book as well which I think can kind of get the juices flowing. Yeah. And then as far as process goes and innovation, there's a lot of resources out there. So one of the resources I used in med school is Google Ventures has a design sprint model that's like two weeks basically, and it's structured. There's exercises you do every day. A lot of it is done around a whiteboard and sticky notes or a virtual whiteboard with sticky notes and just kind of moving things around and feeling out what's right and what's wrong. And then get a group of people who are just as passionate as you and say, hey, can we go through some of these exercises? And if you pitch it as academic activity, so either as a QI project or as like training for your residency, you can get the whole residency involved in this sort of stuff and and move things along. So that's for the trainees. And then, you know, obviously I think as an attending that that process gets easier, just get the whole department on board and say, let's go through some of these design process. You know, I, you're, you're shaking your head. You're like, I don't know if it gets any easier. Uh, from my perspective, it seems like it would be easier, but I don't know that that's actually true. So yeah. In academics, it, it could. I, I think, like you said, I think it's recruiting like-minded individuals to get involved that I think whether you're a trainer or an, an attending, cause even attendings can face resistance from their peers. Like, Hey, why are you spending your time on this? We got more perm casts to do. It, it's one of those things where you got to find a team of people who kind of share an interest so that it gets more importance that way. I think when you have more people involved, I completely agree with you. And I want to know anything else to, to leave our audience with in terms of design thinking. Sure. Yeah. Uh, one other book I wanted to mention, first of all, is uh, this is Service Design Doing. It's a book based oh, yeah. around research in service lines. If you think of healthcare as a service, a lot of their exercises and, and that book is purely activity based. It's like, do this exercise with your team to figure out the next steps. So that's a really good resource as well. So in terms of final thoughts, I think design thinking is a scientific process at its core. A lot of it has to do with research and gathering of data, but then there are also creative elements to it, which is one of the things that I really love about it as someone who is a self-appointed creative. I love that you can really just brainstorm and think through radical solutions and no answer is wrong until it is. So that to me is, is really rewarding. And if you just keep the end user at your core of your process as you iterate, and in healthcare, that would be the patient if you're innovating for the patient or the provider, if you're innovating for the provider, et cetera, if you keep that end user at the center of the process, you end up with a fully baked solution by the end, as opposed to a solution that you then have to go back and figure out how to make usable. I'm really passionate about this. I think that ultimately we are all designers and bad design leads to 
bad health outcomes in, in medicine. And so if you see a sign somewhere, it's bad design and it's your job to, to figure out the solution to that. Um, and it's on all of us in medicine to take that onus on and note our workarounds and then try to solve them. Like I said earlier, we all know good design when we see it, but you feel bad design when it affects your life or the life of your loved ones. So that's kind of, I think, what I really want to reiterate. I will say that the RFS has done a really good job of exposing students to these concepts and there's a biodesign competition now and we led a team through that this year as well at Jefferson. So it is exciting. I think the new trainees get it and they want to make changes. And I think it would be really cool uh, if at SIR in the future we had like a design thinking session. And imagine all those great IR minds in one room thinking through some of these problems and solutions. I think that'd be really awesome. Yeah. I mean, kind of like the M&Ms, right? I mean, right. It's, well, those are some of my favorite sessions at SIR is showing a complication and then basically opening it up and everybody kind of talking through what could have gone better, how it could have gone better. It's the same concept, right? Just showing, okay, look at our lighting. Look how bad it is. Can anybody <laughs> tell us how did you design something better? And like, how do we present that to our admin to like, to make something that that's improved upon? So I love that concept. Yeah, for sure. You know? All right. Well, Greg, we'll wrap it up. Thank you so much for uh, coming on and uh, thank you to our audience. Thanks again for having me. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louie Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. 